action against the covenant. This is Jeremiah 8.13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. What did Isaiah say in 34? And what I gave them has passed away from them. When I gathered them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. What did Jesus and his disciples say? As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Welcome to the Belfast Podcast dedicated to recapturing the Christian imagination. I'm your host, Luke Byler. And this week, Daniel and I finish our discussion on typology. We talk about a paper that I wrote. We kind of work through some of these things here, discussing an image used in the Old Testament and the prophets and gets repurposed by Jesus in the New Testament and Mark 11. It is figs, fig trees, what they represent, how they're using the prophets, how Jesus uses the image in a very similar way, and what this means for this thing we're talking about, this typology throughout the scriptures, this narrative arc and flow that we're, we're going through here. Uh, I, I want to make a comment quickly. I, I was editing the episode, and I, I don't want what is said here to sound like Jesus is being anti-Jewish. I think that is a misreading of the text. I think he's employing this image in the very same way that the prophets use it, calling Israel to be true covenant keepers. And he is enraged in a, in a very similar way to Jeremiah and to Isaiah because they are not doing what they should be. Daniel gets into this a little bit more with some certain references that he, Jesus makes while clearing the temple two Old Testament passages, things that I couldn't even get into in paper because this, this text is so rich. There's so much here to discuss. And so I just wanted to make that clear. I, my mind is not made up on supersessionism. I don't lean that direction. So just to make that clear, um, I think anyone who's been following us for some time will know where we more or less where we stand, so read read this in that context, but I wanted to say that just, just for clarity's sake. Um, as always, I hope that what we're doing here is encouraging, it's enlightening, it gives you a different perspective, it gives you something new, it turns the gem to reveal something else, and I think that this approach would really help and change the way that you read the Old Testament, the New Testament, the echoes you see therein. So, um, <clears throat> Marty Solomon from the Bema 
podcast. He calls this remez usually. Um, Richard Hayes calls it metalepsis. So he um, uses this term here. Metalepsis is a literary technique of citing or echoing. He uses that term quite a lot. A small bit of a precursor text in such a way that the reader can grasp the, sig the significance of the echo only by recalling or recovering the original context from which the fragmentary echo came. And then reading the two texts in dialogical juxtaposition. The figurative effect of such an intertextual linkage lies in an unstated or suppressed point of correspondence between the two texts. And so what he's saying is you have something that exists in the Old Testament, right? And this thing, um, well, we'll get into it in a second. Let's say a fig tree. Okay, and this, this fig tree is described in certain ways with certain characteristics. Cool. And then when Jesus curses the fig tree in the Gospels, he's not just cursing the fig tree to do something. And you might be able to read the passage and understand what's going on just without understanding that, that background. But once you understand that background, it's not just a black and white picture anymore. It's in full color. Like it's in HD, baby like a whole it's, it's brilliant yeah it's brilliant yeah 4k there we go yeah so this was caught in 4k oh my god yeah myself <laughs> and so um yeah we, we have this we these links that exist help us to further understand what's going on in the story because they're operating with an understanding of some cues already that come from before that moment in the story. So I'll let you take it away. So to start, I want to read the thing that you referenced here just now. Mark 11. I'll read this, then we'll get into what Jesus, I think, essentially trying to echo. And then we can talk about how Hayes interprets it and how that might differ from how I've interpreted it. But this is Mark 11. I'll start in verse 11, right, right before the break. But Mark says this, and this story is in, is in a few of the Gospels. And all of them place this instance of the fig tree next to the temple. Mark does it a little differently as he literally splits the story in half of the fig tree with the temple. And I think that's important. But all the accounts we have of the story place those two acts together, which I think is a literary clue that they have something to do with each other. Okay, so Mark says this. I'll start in 11. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry and seen in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. 
and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, and you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowds, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus said to them, have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, take up, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will come to pass. It will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe and you have received it and it will be yours. And whatever you stand, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. Hmm, what an interesting phrase. If you have anything against anyone. So that your father, who is also in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. Now, I'm not going to get into that last bit there. There is just literally too much to write about. But the question is, okay, so there's this fig tree. And I think in Luke's account of this, it withers before their eyes, um, which is an interesting difference. But I don't think it changes the ultimate meaning. But we have this fig tree and Jesus curses it because it doesn't bear fruit. And then he, or it has no fruit on it. And then he clears the temple. And then they see the next day when they're coming back that the tree is in fact withered and is now gone. So what do we make of this? And why? A, a good question to ask to start this would be, does it matter that it's a fig tree? Does that detail matter? I think it does. And that's because of how figs and fig trees are used in the prophetic imagination, specifically in the Old Testament. So I have a section in my paper, and this section is called The Old Testament and Figs. And so I'll read some parts of it and expound. And Daniel, you can you can riff on this if you want to. I say this: the gospel. This is the introduction to this section. The gospel stories are not the first time the fig tree has been used to make a statement about Israel or the temple. See, I'm already reading some stuff into this passage because a lot of the discussion around this is the temple. What is Jesus saying with the fig tree about the temple? The temple. Go ahead. So to, to prove your point a little bit more, right after... Because I don't want to read the whole thing. Because we're yeah. interested in how the Old Testament uses figs. Yeah. So to, to talk about how, um, the t how you can correspond the temple with the fig tree, Jesus references this miracle with the fig tree withering as... Um, he kind of goes on to explain, you know, you think that's impressive. Even the mountain, like you can move a mountain by speaking and it'll be thrown into the sea. And we quote this all the time in popular Christian culture. Oh, you know, mountains move and all that stuff without realizing that probably the mountain that they were looking at was the temple mount. And so what he's saying here is 
this mountain behind me, yeah, that can happen to this if you just have enough faith. All of the corruption that exists in the temple can be done away with if you just faithfully act in God's will and forgive people. And so that's why I think it's super easy to tie the mountain and the fig tree, the, the temple and the fig tree together. And the mountain. Yeah, and, and the mountain is, is because it's all wrapped up together. And later when Jesus gives the parable of the fig tree, the same imagery is going on there too. Yeah. That is a very eschatological reference, by the way, which is worth a whole paper. And maybe those two papers and dialogue together would be interesting. So I say the gospel stories are not the first time the fig tree has been used to make a statement about Israel or the temple. And I'll prove that here in a little bit. Throughout the prophetic books, figs or fig trees represent Israel and its people as the temple did, as we talked about earlier. The space for God's people. The space where God resided with God's people is the temple. The priest wore an ephod, which had gems on it. How many gems? Twelve, right? Yes, one for every tribe, because he represents the people to God in the temple. Okay. Throughout the prophetic books, Figs or fig trees represent Israel and its people. Several times, the description of withering describes the fig tree's leaves or the tree itself. Isaiah 34.4, Jeremiah 8.13, we'll get to those in a minute. The same image is used regarding the fig tree both by Mark and Luke. Mark 11.20, oh, sorry, Matthew and Luke, and Matthew 21.19. Wordplay is not the only connection. In every instance of the image in the Old Testament, the at least in the prophetic book specifically, the fig tree is used to describe the future fate near or far of Israel. Isaiah and Jeremiah both use these images twice. We'll talk about Isaiah 27, 28, and 34. I don't do, tell me if I get too long because I have a lot of examples. Um, I'll read Isaiah 27. Um, I'm trying to figure out. Uh, all right, I'll just read this. Isaiah 27 and 28 come during the time of exile for Judah. In his arrangement, Isaiah places chapters 24 through 27 at, as a turning point, continuing to speak of calamity and renewal for the world. And chapters 28 to 39 bring a challenge of hope for Judah and trouble for Israel. This is Golden Gate's formation or break of Isaiah in his book. Isaiah vacillates between the telling of hope for Israel and the destruction they could still undergo. Chapter 27 speaks of hope, a coming day when they will be delivered from the hand of their captors. The end of the chapter breaks from the poetic verse about the future of Israel to describe what will take place and why. Isaiah exclaims, this is Isaiah 27, 20, 12 through 13. In that day, the Lord will thresh from the, from the flowing Euphrates to the wadi of Egypt, and you, Israel, will be gathered up one by one, and on that day a great trumpet will sound. Those who are perishing in Assyria and exiled in Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain in Jerusalem. Turning the page, 
Isaiah then switches tones to talk of destruction of Ephraim and Judah, personifying the cities to be drunkards and laid low by wine, Isaiah 28, verse 1. Isaiah continues to tell of the judgment that will become of them, and he says in verse 4, that fading flower, his glorious beauty, set on the head of a fertile valley, will be like figs right before harvest. As soon as people see them and take them in hand, they swallow them. These beautiful, the beauty of these cities is proclaimed, but it is fading like a flower, one that is only beautiful for a time. But through unfaithfulness, it is going to be snuffed out, picked like a fig off a fig tree. If we move to Isaiah 34, a few chapters later in Isaiah 34, we get a vision of judgment against nations outside of Israel, not Ephraim and Judah. At the beginning of the chapter, Isaiah, direct, Isaiah, Isaiah says directly who is being addressed. Quote, the Lord is angry with all nations. His wrath is with all their armies. Isaiah 34, 2. As with the previous example for Isaiah, the image of figs is used to convey destruction. Verse 4 in chapter 34, he says, and this gets really interesting, and I'll stop after at the end of this paragraph. Verse 4, he says this. So this would be Isaiah 34, 4. All the stars in the sky will be, dis will be dissolved, and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. Does that sound familiar? Not only is the motif of withering and shriveled figs used again here to tell, to tell of coming destruction, but John borrows this image in his apocalypse in chapter 6. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. He quotes the first part. All the stars in the sky will be dissolved, and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry hosts will fall like withered leaves. That He doesn't have that last phrase. But the image is still clear. The eschatological image is not only confined to the figs in Isaiah 28 and 34, but phrases are repeated across the canon to convey coming disaster. So that's at least a taste of how fig imagery is used just in a few chapters of Isaiah to tell, always to tell, of coming destruction. And we can use one example from Isaiah where it's not necessarily about destruction, um, but it could be. Uh, it's used in Isaiah in Jeremiah 8, um, which is, is that the one that, that's the one I'm going to get into if you want. Okay. Me to. Um, right, and you might have more to add to it. Um, so uh, what I'm, let, yeah. Let me let me do this first. Um. All right. This this is important. So we're talking about we move from Isaiah to Jeremiah. Again, they deal those prophet those prophets deal with a lot of the same issues: Israel, yeah. exile, wicked kings, bad people. It's the same story, again, with different beats, but the melody is similar. In fact, it's to the point where I can't remember. Jeremiah's, yeah, Jeremiah's the last one. Mm -hmm. um, Jeremiah is almost stoned at one point for mm -hmm. saying some of the things he says against the temple. 
And he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Isaiah was saying this 100 years ago. Okay, I'm not the first person to be saying this. So, and, and they all supposedly actually had a lot of respect for Isaiah. And so that kind of is part of his argument against it because he's literally repeating some of the beats of Isaiah. Mm-hmm. He's, he's doing the same thing. It's, it's yeah. So Jeremiah, Isaiah isn't the only one to use this motif. Jeremiah uses it too. He tells of destruction and restoration for Israel. Now, keep this in mind. Chapter 7 begins with God giving a message for his prophet to proclaim repentance for Israel. Otherwise, there will be destruction. God begins his direction by telling Jeremiah, this is Jeremiah 7, 5 through 7. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourn, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, in the land I gave, gave of old to your, fa- to your for- forefathers. In the next chapter, God continues the discourse proclaiming his disdain for the valley of death where the Israelites have been sacrificing the children to other gods to be an abomination. Because they have continued to act this way, he foretells their destruction and loss of the land due to their action against the covenant. This is Jeremiah 8.13. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered. What did Isaiah say in 34? And what I gave them has passed away from them. When I gathered them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. What did Jesus And his disciples say, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Isaiah 34, all the stars in the sky will be dissolved and the heavens rolled up like a scroll. All the starry host will fall like withered leaves from the vine, like shriveled figs from the fig tree. The image is used over and over and over again as an image for the prophet to say, if you, especially in this case with with Jeremiah, if you, Israel, do not amend your ways. You will be. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. You will wither and die in exile. It is foretelling in just about every instance of coming destruction. And so, Jesus, obviously knowing his Old Testament, What do you think? He just happened to pick a fig tree? It was just coincidence 
and then it's just coincidence that as Mark describes the story, he places it next to the driving out of the temple, the thing that is the center of the life of the life of Israel, of the sacrificial system, of the people. He destroys what's going on there. And then later, when Peter comes back, either he literally said it or Mark puts it in his mouth. Doesn't matter either way. But oh, look, the, the fig tree that you cursed, it's withered. Well, that all being an accident sounds too good to be true. So it probably isn't. And I'm not... I'm not here, at least in this episode, to give all my thoughts on the implications of this passage. Matter of fact, I'm, my view is, well, I guess I'll just give one an option. This is my view. Into this, Jesus is foretelling the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That's what I see. Because he does this in other ways. When he uses the fig tree in other stories to tell of the coming eschatology, right? This one, this one possibility. There's a bunch of people that would not agree with me, and that's fine. That's why we debate these things. But it is, or it should be, very obvious that the Old Testament authors are using these, and God is giving them this image of the fig tree to tell of destruction. So Jesus, knowing that, uses literally, as we've talked about in his whole ministry, he, he comes out of Egypt, he gets baptized by John, he goes into the wilderness, he comes back from the wilderness. As he talks to the, don't you see? Don't you see? I'm acting it out. I'll go up to this fig, but it's, there's no, there's no, there's no fruit. Just, just, just as is said, there's no grapes on the vine. There's no figs on the fig tree. It's withered. Literally, I'm going to curse it. Because this I, is the image that you know of for destruction. And then I'm going to do something to the temple. I don't like. It, it can't be a coincidence. It can't be. Jesus is too smart. Mark is too smart. Like, you don't do this unintentionally. All right, go ahead. So I've actually heard some people use, because it actually says that it was out of season for figs. So you mm -hmm. shouldn't even expect figs on the fig tree, right? Yeah. So I've heard some people say, oh, well, that's why, you know, as like an excuse to like not believe in in christianity or think that jesus was being cruel in some way because he punishes the fig tree for not bearing fruit out of season or something like that and i think that entirely misses the point and it's viewing it you know, we could go back to um what peterson's talking about with the um the way that the atheist crowd and the fundamentalist crowd are arguing over the same issue. You're trying to make the story too rigid and you're not seeing the fact that Jesus is play acting something, right? If you're just thinking he's doing these things just for the heck of it, no, there's something very complex and intentional going on here. 
in fact, all of the words around, um, all of the words that are taking place around this story are also feeding into the meaning and the condemnation of the temple and, and everything. Um, so unless you have more to say about that or from your no, paper, that, so I'm going to skip over to Hayes again. Um, and he talks about this, this section. Um, so in Mark eleven seventeen, 17, um, it's another one of these, um, it is written kind of things. Um, I believe this is Jesus speaking. He said, uh, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of I didn't prayer even... for all nations. Do so I... these are specific Old Testament quotations Jesus is making. Yeah. While he clears the temple. Yes, exactly. I read about this in papers that I used for reference, and I thought, I already have almost half my paper dealing with Old Testament mm -hmm. images of the fig tree, and I haven't even gotten to yeah. what this means in Jesus' context. Yeah. And I thought, I can't go on a whole other side tangent about Jesus' quotations during the clearing of the temple of Old Testament path, like, yeah, just to prove how deep this goes, this which is why I'm doing this. Yeah, is I I can barely scratch the surface or a like a a version of these notes. Right, I yeah. get part of a tempo. Yeah, and I don't even like I am three minutes into the song and there's 11 more minutes, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So just to flesh out some of this around to kind of solidify the idea that this is really something that's going on with the temple. Um, so is it not written? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's Mark eleven seventeen. So now I'm going to read, um, Isaiah 56, 7, and 8. These foreigners I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be, at, be called a house of prayer for all nations. Thus says the Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel, I will gather others to them besides those already gathered. Now, interesting, notice, said nothing about a den of robbers in that whole section. Okay, so as it is written... But a house of prayer was repeated. But a house of prayer, twice. yes. Yeah, so... In reference to foreigners. In reference to foreigners. Being accepted out, in the temple. Being accepted in the temple. Jesus clears out the court of the Gentiles where they had set up traders and money exchange stations and merchants. So the Gentiles weren't allowed to go further into the temple than the court of Gentiles. And so their space to worship God was occupied by people trying to make a quick buck off of the temple system. Great. And so Jesus is going in there and he's clearing out the temple in order to make space for the Gentiles who are supposed to be included in this from the beginning. What does God say to Abraham in Genesis 12? You will be a blessing to all nations. It's just, it's the same beats. Beat over and over. And over and over again. Yeah. So, but he, so we still got this den of robbers thing that's going on, which is interesting, right? Um, 
What's in what's even more interesting though is that there's actually another Bible verse that's at play here too from the Hebrew Bible that we don't usually pick up on. Zechariah 14:21 There shall no longer be traitors in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. It's on that day. What too. day? The day of judgment the day right is how it's usually referenced and it's it's the eschaton and so hayes views this action of jesus clearing out the money changers ushering them out of the temple of god all of these traders and uh, merchants out of the temple as him play acting this section from zechariah saying okay All nations shall come and pray at the house of the Lord. No money changers. We've got two prophets at work right now, right? And he's play acting Zechariah. He's quoting Isaiah. And then we finally get to the the den of robbers thing. Let me me find it here. Okay, so I'm not going to read the whole section he has here, but it's Jeremiah 7, wouldn't you know? And he references Jeremiah 8 with the fig tree. Mm-hmm. So um, this is probably 10 or 11. Which would have been right after what I quoted in, earlier in my, in my introduction to the part on Jeremiah, yeah. where God says, if you do this, if you do that, if you keep the covenant, you will get the land back. Yep, exactly, exactly. And so, um, yeah, um, in fact, I could read it. It's on this page, but he's talking about amend your ways Mm-hmm. your doings let me dwell in you uh, with you in this place so again let me dwell with you in this place is taking us right back to eden it's taking us right back to leviticus right back to exodus like all of this dwell with god imagery as the whole purpose of this exercise taking us right back to there in jeremiah and jesus is play acting and quoting this entire section and that's another point that we should keep in mind verse and chapter numbers didn't exist they viewed these in a much of a different way when we cite a verse or when they cite a verse rather they're not citing just that verse because that verse wasn't isolated by itself to them it was within a broader section that meant a lot more so to skip down right i mean he's talking about idolatry adultery the worship of baal um don't say we are safe in the temple because God's presence is here um, only go uh, only to go on doing all these abominations has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your sight you know I too am watching says the Lord that's Jeremiah so Jeremiah gives this declaration and Jesus is play acting and stringing together multiple texts on top of each other as though it's one quotation to make a point. He's saying, okay, you didn't let the Gentiles in. Instead, you replaced them for money. This place has become a den of robbers. It's time to cleanse the temple. And then... And you read Jeremiah 8.13 already. 
there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree, even the leaves are withered. And so he, we have this miracle play action of the thing he just did in the temple using the prophets, some of the same passages, some different passages layered on top of each other to paint this beautiful picture, beautiful picture. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's, it's all connected. It's, it's all connected. And without seeing typology as a, a predominant structure, a paradigm through which we can see the way the Bible is functioning, it becomes a lot harder to see these things. You can think of it as another note in the melody. Mm -hmm. Right. Because all this talk of temple, land, ex exile. Mm -hmm. Well, what happened to... What happened to Adam? What happened to... What happens to Israel? What happens to Moses? Right. What happens to Jesus out of Egypt? I called my son. It's all part of that same, same thing that's happening. It's just different notes, maybe a different tempo at a different time, but it's the same thing. And there is, it doesn't mean it's simple as we've just described. There is... Yeah a whole lot of complexity going on and even just we just talked about how many verses in mark uh 11 through we didn't even get to the end of 20 through 25 uh 11 through 21 10 verses yeah and we didn't even really give an answer. We just pointed out all these interesting connections. Ten verses in Mark. And they play on like four notes that we've been talking about. And the way in which Jesus plays on them, the way in which Mark plays on them, the way in which the disciples allude to them. It's anything but simple. But it is, it's fascinating. And it's, you have to know a few things, obviously, to get the connections, but how to say this? When you know them, they're not as obscure references as you might think they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fig trees and figs, it's a little odd, but it's used by a lot of prophets to exemplify a huge image in the whole Old Testament, the temple and the people of God. Well, the people of God, specifically Israel, which then is used by Jesus in reference to something that gives the people of God access to God being the temple. And so, 
So yeah, it's. I I don't know of. I don't know of a better way. I I don't. Um, I I think this is the. As I've learned to. as I've learned to look for these things and try to see the patterns that emerge, I, I, I don't know of a better way. Um, and as we said earlier with Tim's example of Jesus' reference to what the whole Old Testament is about, it sounds when someone finally sits and explains it to you, it sounds so simple. Well, duh, shouldn't we have been thinking about it like that for a long, it, literally out of the mouth of Jesus. Here's the story pattern to look for. When you look at the Old Testament, the Messiah, the chosen one of God, suffers, exile, death, resurrection, new life, forgiveness. It is everywhere with a bunch of different images and a bunch of things threaded together. And that's the thing that makes it fun and complex is that it isn't, each of those things isn't always the same image, right? But the motifs as the images are used throughout the canons is consistent. And you have to develop a collection of these motifs, right? You have to figure out what are the major themes that go on and how, how are these things being used and employed in similar ways? And how are they being employed in different ways? Because it mm -hmm. might be that the biblical author realizes that when you see a fig tree, you're going to expect this. And so they do something different with it, mm -hmm. right? Now, I don't have an example of that, but um, let's take... The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree or wood that um, Isaac is going to be sacrificed on, right? It's creating a tension moment. Is Abraham going to do the thing God called him to do unlike Adam and Eve, right? So it's subverting that expectation. Um, so it, what this type of typological and intertextual interpretation requires is a deep familiarity with the text. Because the more you know the Bible, the more soundly you can connect all the dots and create this beautiful tapestry. And I'm not even saying, and I think we should get into this in a second, that every single way of potentially connecting the dots in our imagination is correct. Right? Yeah. I think you can do some bad intertextual work too. But I, can, I also think that you can do some intertextual work um, that's well-founded. And I think that's honestly the best type of work with the Bible, period. So the best interpretation is the one that takes is the one that takes the most things into account. Yes. So uh, I'm trying to think of. I'm trying to think of like a hotly debated example that's 
tough because there isn't that many of them. Um, that many things in the throughout the canon that discusses a specific thing. Um, yeah. I can't at the moment. Uh, but I'll use this example. So And I'll, I'll use it to make a connection. You can tell me if you agree with this connection or not. Okay. So part of this is, so, okay. Hebrews. Hebrews 13, keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now, how do we always picture angels? As flying figures with wings. Angels messengers of god whether you take the greek word or the hebrew word are never ever described as having wings now they actually pretty much always appear in some kind of embodied form my most my favorite example of this is genesis 18 to 19. Because as, let's just go there. Genesis 18. So just real quick, mm -hmm. what's funny is as you were reading that passage, this is what my mind did. I thought hospitality, angels, hospitality, angels, what passage focuses on both hospitality and angels? And that's how intertextuality works, right? You're given one, two, three little things. And wherever your mind jumps, you check there, right? But you have to be familiar enough because my mind went straight to Genesis 18 too, right? Also, Genesis 18 also, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. The heading in the NIV is three visitors. Here, back to something you alluded to earlier. The Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham near the great tree of Mamre. Well, he was sitting at the entrance of his tent. So the Lord appears to Abraham by a tree. Under at a the tree, place of sight. At the place of sight. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. I've talked about this passage before on this podcast, I believe. And what I find fascinating in Abraham, in the, at the end of the story, when Abraham pleads for Sodom, 
and for the restoration of the city. And he says, if, you know, if there's 40, if there's 30, if there's 20, if there's 10. Right before he does that, Genesis 18, 22, the men turned away and went to Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Well, if there's 50, 40, 30. 2010. Okay. But the two men, they turned away and went to Sodom. And how many were there in the beginning of the passage? Three men. One of them being Yahweh, which is interesting, but not the point of this discussion. Genesis 19, verse 1. Two angels, two messengers arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed before them with his face to the ground. My Lord just said, please turn aside to your servant. You can wash your feet and spend the night. We have instances where the angels appear for the woman at the tomb to Mary as a young girl. We have every instance of an angel and even instances where Yahweh appears to people and they're seen and comprehended. And they always appear in human form. They're a messenger, so they appear in a way that the message can be received. Divine accommodation. If angels always appeared with wings, as so, here's the thing that gets that gets people tripped up. Seraphim. We don't really know what the Nephilim looked like, but this angel conversation in the Old Testament is part of my argument for, well, how could the Nephilim have sex with women? Well, how do angels seem to always appear in the Bible? They have a body. They appear to be gendered as well. So worth thinking about. Um, Seraphim, the... Like cherubim. the beast before the throne, the cherubim. They're all described as having wings. Guess what? They're not messengers. They're not angels. They're something different. This is just to say that. So that was the connection that I didn't know if you disagree with. That's how yeah. I make my argument for the Nephilim. And the son and the daughters of man is like, well, there's other spiritual beings that God sends as messengers. It doesn't seem to be that they always are in that form, but they appear in human form to people to deliver messages. So what's to stop the Nephilim from taking on a fleshly appearance? Well, and I think this goes to the greater point of um the intertextual conversation, right? That you mentioned, you read that verse and through those two hospitality and angels, my mind immediately went to Genesis 18. So I think that's how reading the Bible is supposed to work oftentimes, right? You read something, a fig tree, no figs withering. Oh, Jeremiah 8, 13. 
right? That's, that's the process. And part of our problem, I think, in our culture is that we're not familiar enough with the biblical text to engage that process. Because the Bible was written to a people who were familiar enough with it to engage that process. I mean, let's, so another quick example, real quick. I'm going to read um, Romans 3. Um, let's see, 9 through 9 through 18. What then? Are we better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all both Jews and Greeks are under the power of sin, as it is written. And this is all in block quotation, the rest of what I'm going to read. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. There is no one who shows kindness. There is not even one. Their throats are open graves. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery are in their path. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Okay, what is all that? That's all a block quote, right? As it is written, where does it come from? Well, it comes from Psalm 14, 1 and 2, 53, 1 and 2, Psalm 5, 9, Psalm 143, Psalm 10, 7, Proverbs 1, 16, Isaiah 59, 7 and 8, and Psalm 36, 1. Oh, just, just those right? Paul's expecting you to know all of that. Because Paul doesn't just want to make a point that all of these people are doing these things. All of these verses come in passages that are specifically chosen because they represent something about the point Paul is trying to get across. I'm not going to go into that all here, partially because I haven't studied it enough to know it by memory. And also because I think there are more important things to do with our time, at least for right now. The point I'm making is Paul just, just quoted, I didn't even count, at least 10 verses from the Old Testament in very different places, most of them from the Psalms. And put them all together. And put them all together and didn't even tell you because he's expecting you to know. And just like with the fig tree, and just like with this, this flow, right? The typological flow of up the mountain of God to be in his presence and pushed out of the mountain of God, down the mountain, because we're, we are broken and sinful and can't reside in his holiness. And so we are exiled because of the choices we make. 
just like that movement we see tracking everywhere. That's part of what Paul is doing right here. We are all pushed out. We are all pushed into exile. Excuse me, because we all have this same problem. Paul's tracking part of that movement and he's doing it using others, other passages that track parts of that movement. And they all track parts of that movement differently, different notes. And he's putting all these notes together to form a melody to create a greater point. And again, we miss it. Part of that point is Gentiles, you know that you're being adopted. Jews, you know that you've also messed up. So let's, let's be together in community. So, I mean, that, that's just a, an example of Paul doing this. Mm -hmm. We have an example of it happening in the Gospels and how Jesus play acts it. And we have the greater typological example. It's everywhere. Reading the Bible, you're not going to get away from it. you have anything else? So a little bit, and okay. I'm, I'm not sure we can cut this if you want to cut it. And if it doesn't really apply very well, but I think one easy objection that could be raised against this type of interpretation is, well, isn't this just your own subjective opinion or leading by the Holy spirit that we critiqued mm -hmm. back in a previous episode about what is the text that this text is referencing? How is it that you're, you know, going about this? And is, is this good, bad, right, wrong, whatever? Um, and so I think it's appropriate to address that. I'll try to be brief and you can kind of flesh this out too. I want to read several examples because this isn't just, a, this isn't a new way of interpreting. This is actually a really old way of interpreting. And anyone who's been following along and knows me, um, I'm going to be referencing Augustine. Yeah. Um, so this is a book from my um, Preachers of the Early Church class I took this past semester called The Essential Expositions of the Psalms. I think I referenced it in a previous episode. It's by um, New City Press. Um, before we get into that, I'm going to cite my teacher and a few things that he said, um, talking about just generalized perspectives of interpretation. Um, and we were talking about this kind of intertextual way of preaching specifically, mm -hmm. uh, because one of the things that we see Augustine do is he doesn't just interpret things intertextually and see the links, but he also will preach. He'll say, okay, well, the Bible over here says this one thing. And then over here, it says something similar using a similar phrase. And so he uses the one to interpret the other, almost like the biblical authors do, right? Um, and so um, I think it's, it's an interesting practice because we can kind of do this too. In today's teaching, I think you and I have probably even done that um, throughout our conversation today. Um, so a, a bit of a, a backstory, um, origin of Alexandria um, talks about being under his Jewish teacher. He apparently had someone who was teaching him Bible who was Jewish. I don't know if he means just Jewish ethnically and Christian in practice as a subset. Again, he's pretty early. So it's very likely that um, it's or possible that um, 
the, the Jewish heaviness, heavy presence in the church early on still kind of carried over into a lot of his dealings, at least with his, his teacher. Um, but he says that his teacher described scripture as a giant labyrinth full of locked doors with keys to different doors in front of them. And it is our job as interpreters to figure out which key goes with which door. And I think that's such a beautiful analogy, right? Because it takes into account this typology of the up the mountain, down the mountain, through suffering and death, into resurrection and new life, this whole thing, right? But it's also taking into account this intertextuality. Okay, we've got this, this key from over here. What door does it go to? This, this verse from over here, what verse can I connect it with that makes it all make sense, right? Um, they describe taking a flint and steel, two verses, and striking them together to create a spark that will light a fire. Jesus, the fig tree. Jesus. And the temple. Fig tree, the temple. And then all of the prophetic images, like you take these two together, you strike them together and it creates a fire, right? And it's big, it burns bright, it's beautiful, it warms you, you know, all of that kind of stuff. You can take the analogy there, right? Well, Augustine does some intertextual interpretation too. So I'm going to read a few sections from this. I'm going to go in reverse order of how it is in the book, uh, but they're all different sermons, so it doesn't really... Uh, matter. And one of the reasons I've chosen at least two of these, I'm going to use three examples, two of them is because this is Augustine's interpretation of something involving a fig tree. So um, he's preaching on is an exposition of Psalm 31. He says, uh, when people who are wicked pass themselves off as righteous, are they not full of guile? So in this psalm, there's this phrase that comes up. Um, your mouth is full of guile. Something to that effect. Nathaniel was not like that. Of him, the Lord said, look, there is a true Israelite in, uh, in whom there is no guile. John 1, 47. And so he's taking this phrase from the psalm and he's connecting it with... When you, when you, when you quoted that, I thought, that's what Jesus says. Yeah, exactly. E exactly. I didn't even know it was a quotation from a psalm, but yeah, there we are. Yeah. And so you're more familiar with what Jesus said than with the psalm. And mm -hmm. so what you end up doing is, and this is why it's awful that we neglect the Old Testament, right? Is Because, yeah, you know what Jesus said, but you don't know what he wasn't saying when he said that, right? And so he's connecting this psalm that he's preaching from with this, but he's also about to connect it to something else, the passage we've been talking about all day. Um, so in whom there is no guile, that's John 1, 47. But why was there no guile in Nathaniel? When you were under the fig tree, I saw you, the Lord told him in the next verse. He was under a fig tree, which symbolized being subject to a condition of one's flesh. Now, we could say, I, I think that's actually kind of a decent interpretation, especially given our, um, the way we've been describing this, right? Under the fig tree, withering because you're sinful and God's presence is leaving, um, that sort of thing, right? 
I can kind of draw that. I might not say it in that way, but I think Augustine's getting kind of close. And you might disagree. I don't know. Um, do you have anything to say? I would just say I'm, I would agree. He's, he's at least on the path, right, to use yeah. um, to use the example we talked about earlier. That Augustine he's, wrote. Exactly. He's on the path. He's, he hasn't necessarily wandered off. Yeah, but there's there's a way in which to phrase it to make it more accurate, I guess, to the prophetic imagination. But you could ask, what would be the state of someone who would not produce the fruit, who would be worthy of exile, destruction, someone who is, as Paul talks about in that Romans passage, subjected to the flesh? Yep, exactly. So you're a few steps removed, and I might phrase it differently, especially for our context. He's preaching to different contexts, and he also... Um, has a lot of different cultural presuppositions, but he's doing the same intertextual work that we're talking about, right? So one who's subject to the conditions of our flesh. If he was subject to fleshly conditions, being held prisoner by the impiety, we all inherit by human descent. Okay, so now he's getting into some original sin stuff. We've been over original sin, so you can go, um, listener, you can go find that conversation. We won't get into that, but we would disagree with Augustine on that. Uh, then he was under the fig tree. Um, then he was under that fig tree. Another psalm groans about, lo, I was conceived in iniquity. And so again, he's using another intertextual mm-hmm. link because around that, I think, is another um, reference to a fig tree. But he who saw Nathaniel there, he who had come to bring, uh, was he who come to bring grace? What does he saw him mean? He had mercy on him. So when he commands a man free from guile, uh, commends a man free from guile, what he is commending is his own grace in that man. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. What is special about saying I saw you? Nothing, unless you understand that it is in a particular sense here, because otherwise, what is remarkable about seeing anyone under a fig tree. Um, And then he kind of goes on to talk about um, the miracle of Jesus seeing him when he wasn't present and all of that stuff. But anyway, you can see how he's doing this same intertextual interpretive work. And he might take in a slightly different way than either of us would, but he's being sensitive to the, the way fig tree has been used in the biblical Corpus. And he's linking, he linked three texts together, or four really, with another psalm, four texts together using an intertextual chain, just like Paul did. Mm-hmm. Right. So, very, very interesting. Um, do you have anything to add to that? Uh-uh. So, and this might not be, I debated about whether or not to actually include this. Um, but this is another example, and I'll just, I'll read it. We can cut it if, we, if it isn't and worth the time. But um, he's preaching again on another psalm, because this is about the psalm, Psalm uh, 44. But he's already linked this psalm to Jacob's ladder in that passage. So now for the ladders. In the gospel, when the Lord saw Nathaniel, he looked up and said, there is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. Mm -hmm. Something 
like that has been said about Jacob. Jacob was a man without guile who lived at home, Genesis 25, 27. So he's linking Jacob and Nathanael through this phrase. Then the Lord remembered um, the description when he had caught sight of Nathanael, a man free from guile who came from the same people as Jacob. So he said, look, there is a true Israelite in whom there is no guile. He called Nathanael a guileless Israelite because he had Jacob in mind. So this is also interesting. He's giving a different interpretation than the one we just read on the exact same passage in the context of a different sermon. I mean, I don't know. It's, it's interesting, right? And he's doing, he hits several of the same beats because then he moves on to the fig tree um, I saw you when you were under the fig tree, uh, and, and, and all of that stuff. And so it's just fascinating because he uses the same intertextual link and interprets it in similar ways, but slightly different and connects it to a different passage this time using a different link, right? So focusing on the guile and not the fig tree quite as much. Um, and so this is why I think it's important to see the Bible as artistic, right? Because if you don't have that framework in mind, then you miss out on a lot of the things that are going on in the background. These typologies and the way the movement tracks. This is reading the Bible with a bit of imagination. Yep. Reading the Bible with imagination. Trying to see the way that all of the notes fit together to form a melody. And the problem that we opened this talk, this conversation with was something like, well, when we've heard the Bible explained, at least when it comes to prophecy, it's been one note. Yep. And if there's more than one, usually it's say, oh, no, those are the same note. Or you can disregard the, the note of time and place for the prophet, because what the one you really want to hear, the thing that's important is how it gets to Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. And, <clears throat> you know, we disregard all of these other notes to the detriment of the fuller interpretation. Right. And you, what, can, you can't understand the fig tree unless you understand the fig images used in the mm -hmm. Bible. Yeah. And what Augustine does, and I won't read this, but in a different sermon, I think I've read it in a previous episode, is he talks about um, stones being built in a spiritual house and referencing the temple again as the spiritual house. And he links the psalm he's preaching from with the passage in First Peter that talks about us being living stones. And he uses some, we would classify it as historical critical data about David and when David lived and when the uh, temple was built and all of the, in the city in which the temple was built and all of this stuff, trying to make sure that he's not going off the path that he talks about in, on Christian doctrine and that we referenced in a previous episode, making sure he's trying to stay on the path using these, these ways of checking himself and grounding his work. And so, you know, if, 
you're worried about, oh, well, this intertextual stuff just seems like you can kind of link whatever you want. No, it's, it's, very, it's very connected, right? And I think a key, a key thing to understand is that um, Augustine doesn't see himself as, and I don't think we would see ourselves this way either, is, as um, interpreting something intertextually and subtly that isn't made plain in another passage. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's part of this typological rhythm, right? The same story copy and paste it over and over again. It's grounded because it happens all the time. It's not just a one off accident. Oh, we kind of came up with this crazy interpretation. It's something that's happening consistently. The chosen one suffers and dies and is reborn. We are ushered into God's presence, but because of the ways we reject the ways we're called to live in God's presence, we are exiled out. These rhythms allow us to check and make sure we and our interpretations are in step with the patterns of scripture. I'll use a... um... I've been watching a lot of videos by a guy named Mahler, M-A-U-L-E-R. He does uh, film criticism on YouTube. A lot of his bigger videos have been about the uh, been about the recent Star Wars films. He has a He has a four-part series on the Force Week and then I think a three-point part series on the Rise of Skywalker. Um, but in all of them, his basic premise is, or his basic points is two things, fundamentally. Either A, how this is told is just simply illogical and bad storytelling, with unclear character motivation uh, or B break Star Wars lore and as we talked about a week ago I believe or a few weeks ago or last time we recorded was we talked about the formation of canons and so I, I bring that up to say that Ryan Johnson's interpretation of Star Wars isn't abomination to Star Wars. Now you could say, oh, he can interpret it however he wants, but there have been a fairly established guidelines up to that point about how you use Star Wars or themes in Star Wars or characters in Star Wars um this was a lot of people's let's just take a character and i'm not going to talk about solo because i never actually saw solo because i didn't think it was worth my time i haven't seen it either uh but when abrams so not johnson but abrams when abrams makes force awakens well a he copy pasted um 
a new hope which is fine because it's what abrams does he just copy pastes other things and puts them on a different story um and he doesn't ever really change anything which makes him lazy right because mm-hmm. we went through a bunch of biblical examples about how things get changed and tweaked but they still are on those same notes um but a lot of people had issues with how Han Solo is treated as a character. Mm-hmm. Oh, so you're going to tell me that uh, the guy who was kind of the begrudging, self-interested smuggler who turns out, who has a whole arc and becomes someone who is caring about people and comes back to save Luke and you know, does all this stuff and actually doesn't bottle up his emotions with Leia at the end and, you know, becomes a fairly likable guy has suddenly reverted back to I'm a bumbling idiot and I don't know anything who actually doesn't know how to fix the Millennium Falcon and Ray just does it for him. You, you tell me, Abrams, that that works that interpretation of that character is accurate. And part of the problem is that no. it's, it's not on key, right? Exactly. You need to change the notes, but you're still in the same key. And I guess that's what I was trying to get to earlier, right? If you're going to check your interpretation, you have to make sure that it's on key, right? I'd say Augustine pretty good at staying on key most of the time i might disagree with him occasionally but he's pretty on key and he did a lot of amazing things as a person and as a preacher right but it's because of sensitivity to the movement the beat the tempo the key the melody the harmony like he's doing all of these things Right. And that interpretation of Han Solo is not on key. Right. Why are the Lord of the Rings movies so good? They changed several significant things from the books. You have an entire character who's not even in them, Tom Bombadil, and people make jokes about that all the time. The reason they're so good is because they're on key. Right. If you're on key, it doesn't matter. That's what's making so many people mad about Amazon series or even the Kenobi series. Yeah, yeah. I've, I can't tell you how many videos on the Kenobi series that I've seen are like, this show hates its protagonists. Like, I haven't seen Obi-Wan doesn't so. act like Obi-Wan. He's an idiot, right? Wow. Well, he's a... He's a competent male figure that we have to denigrate to the Point to of the uh, heroic um, and infallible female. Gotcha. Well, might not watch it. We'll see. So. point is that we see this happen and we see people get angry people are very angry about oh and it's just 
toxic fandom. No, 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 no. You're you're messing with things. You aren't on key. Yeah. You aren't true like true to the source material. What do we mean? That's exactly what we mean. And if your interpretation of particular passages or sections of scripture aren't on key, then, well, that's a problem. But we have to know what is and isn't the key we're playing in. And so... And we can debate about what is and isn't on key and where those boundaries are and all of that, right? Or which ones are the notes that we should pay the most attention to. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that it's just, you know, all whatever. So, so I, th I think this yeah. has been, been a really fruitful conversation. Uh, we've dealt with a lot of big things. But at, at the core of it, I think that it's important to understand that that typological movement and flow helps us to, to track where we are in relationship to, to the Bible interpretively and intertextually. And to understand that there are, there's a key or a plane and there's motifs and there's notes and they repeat and there's images that used and there's multiple images that get used for certain things. And there's ways in which you can, the beautiful thing about the example that Mackie gave and the, the one that you showed from, from the, uh, from the book, who shall send the mountain of God. There's ways in which you can, in, in simple ways, use that to track movements in the story. But as we showed with the Jesus and the fig tree in Mark 11, there's also seemingly enormous depth in how once you see that, then you can track all the other things that appear underneath it. Yeah. Um, you know, it's like you see the iceberg, but you only see, you can still see the iceberg, but you might only see the top of it. If you get under the water, if you get far enough away, you can see the whole thing. Now we can debate whether we'll ever actually see the whole thing. I'd say probably not, but back to our quote about, in time, out of time. Yep. Moving along with history. Yeah. Um, but hopefully, this is given some practical ways in which that imagination can start to work in reading, in reading the Bible, yeah. in seeing. Like I said, with the Mark passage, is it important that Jesus curses a fig tree? Is it important that the sacrifice of Isaac happens on top of a mountain? Is it important that Isaac carries the wood? Is it important that it takes three days? Is it important that there's two goats in on the Day of Atonement? 
is it important that Jesus, so this is the question that N.T. Wright begs in the day the revolution began, of all the days that Jesus could pick for his atoning death, he picks Passover. Why? He could have picked any festival on the calendar. He could have picked Yom Kippur. He could have picked the Day of Atonement. But he didn't. He picked what? The Passover, the Exodus. Why? I think it maps better on the typology that's been happening in the whole Old Testament. Yeah. The, but these are the kind of questions as you read passages that, that you can just begin to ask. And hopefully, through prayerful consideration, you research, you, you read, you see what is brought to you and what conclusions can then be drawn about what you see. And you can be as simple with those as you want or as complex with those as you want. That's up to you. But I hope that through this conversation, we've illuminated some things, but also given you some practical ways in which to take these disciplines, this frame of reading, of investigation, and use it in your own study. So real quick, and then I'll have nothing left to say. Um, one of the things that I've found really helpful in looking for this kind of typology, obviously, who shall ascend the mountain of the Lord. It, I don't think it's too scholarly for people to pick up and read. Um, it has transliteration as opposed to original Hebrew uh, in there. Um, and it's dense, but it's, I don't think it's too bad. So you could always do this because this does a really good job, especially with the first few chapters of tracking the typology because they spent, I think, a whole chapter on Genesis, a whole chapter on Exodus, and then the rest of the book is basically on Revelation, though I think the last chapter is going to be on how Jesus kind of ends the typology. That's a good resource. I also think the Bible Project podcast and app, right now they're doing a whole series going through the Torah, and as, excuse me, as they're moving through, they're tracking these themes, or a lot of these themes, not all of them. So you could check them out for some, some more background on looking at major themes that flow throughout scripture. Um, they call them movements, um, which I think is a really good way of thinking about it. So... I've read from it enough now, but if we're going to add recommendations. You can all read Pete N's Incarnation Inspiration. It is under 200 pages. So it's not yeah, a long that's book. That's shorter than this one. I think about, about 100 pages. It's um, fairly it's fairly easy to read. He made it, he intentionally made it very accessible. Um, yeah. I think it's a it's at least a it's a great starting point to address. And he 
most of the book besides the introduction is a whole conversation of intertextuality and how some of these things play with and against each other. Um, I mean, he, if you want to, I didn't even plan this, but this seems to be how we've gone. Um, he opens with the incarnational analogy that we read from a few times. Then he goes and talk about the Old Testament and its comparison to ancient Near Eastern literature. Um, he talks about how the Old Testament is theologically diverse and some of its emphases on its certain notes change throughout its, its history. Then what we heard from today is the Old Testament and its interpretation in the New Testament. And then he ends with, you know, kind of a discussion of, okay, what do we do with all of these things and looking at the Bible and the Old Testament and some of our modern issues we have in reading it. Um, so it's very much followed a similar format to what we've taken in terms of explaining and trying to illuminate what's going on here, but it's a great resource. It's, I read it in about a week, um, pretty casually, uh, not, not hours a day, but maybe, you know, 30 minutes here and there. So, um, that's another resource you can pick up if you'd like to, uh, we'll definitely have more book recommendations coming in the future. So I think that's it. That's all I got. That's out too. All righty.